Hey everyone, Stephanie here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. There is some brief discussion around racial discrimination and violence on today's episode. So if you'd rather just avoid that today, that's totally okay. It will be here whenever you're ready for it. In the meantime, we would encourage you to donate to Black Lives Matter and we will link that in the show notes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. Stephanie. Yes. What are we talking about today? Today we'll be discussing Augusta Savage's masterpiece called The Harp from 1939. Stephanie. <laughs> yes. Paint a picture for us. Okay. For, for me and the listeners at home, the little earbuds in their precious little ears. <laughs> what okay. are we doing? What are we seeing? All right. What are we tasting? What's the air like? Okay, uh, that's a lot of questions. Let's start with the air. Okay. Uh, the air is not so good, not okay. so bueno. No? <laughs> no. The air's not good. No, it's not. It's not good, okay. So we are in uh, the 1930s. 1930s? Let's just say we're in 1930 at the moment. Okay. Okay, so World War One happened. All right, bringing it down right at the top, okay. World War One happened, and that was the first <sighs> war of its kind. There was a huge death toll. It involved several countries mm. around the world. Losing listeners left and right. All right. They're taking their earbuds out of their precious ears. What else we got? Okay. Something good. What's good? What's next is... Hang on. Um, Hang on, listeners. Put them back in. The 1918 pandemic, mm. which lasted about a couple years. Okay. A lot of people also died. Okay. Uh-huh. So, All right. But then... We enter the 1920s. Roaring 20s. The Roaring 20s, okay. which I have a feeling we might be entering might that be in into, real life. Yeah, I might be staying home, not because I don't have the shop, but because uh, I just don't want to be around that many people. Yeah, we're all going to be dressing up yeah. everywhere we go. Kind of get it now. Big hats, big, big puffy sleeves, big shoulder pads. Okay, no, but um, <laughs> sure, whatever you want. Okay, yeah. so Roaring 20s are happening. Cool, right, so it's everyone's up. partying. It's, it's great, it's great. Till it's not. 1930 happens. Stock market crashes. All right, listeners, just take your earbuds out. This is going to be a good one. (laughs) People are jobless. People are hungry. People are poor. So then that's where we're at right now. 1930. But at least we're together. We're unified. We're working towards a common cause. As Americans, united we stand together, arm in arm, regardless of race, color, ethnicity, sexuality, uh, whatever. We're all together. Can you stop making me the bearer bad news? Because all the while the 1920s and 30s, there are race riots breaking out. There are mm. racial tensions that are causing mm. violence against black Americans mm. and honestly just people of color. Mm. So what year was this again? This was the 1920s ish. Okay. 1930s. Good thing we've uh, figured, Lots changed. figured this out. A lot has changed. <laughs> well, there were people in New York planning out a nice distraction, a nice surprise. Mm. Something called the World's Fair in New York City, oh. 1939, was a set year for it. They started planning for it years in advance, but they thought, hey, everyone's depressed because everything sucks right now. Yeah. Let's give the people something they want. Some distractions. A little entertainment. Okay. So yeah, they got a fat check, $2,000 in their pocket, going to the World's Fair. Go have fun. Yeah. Go. Well, it's, more, it's, more, it's actually 14 Americans could use something more inspirational, something positive, something hopeful to look forward to. 
So the World Sport organizers said, hey, why don't we name it A World of Tomorrow? Okay, so looking towards the future. Because the present and the past suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was 100 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Stop saying it. Stop okay. saying Stop Okay, stick. no, no, I know no. it's a fact. Okay. Stop reminding right. us. We're good. We're good All here. Right. So a World's Fair is a large international exhibition where countries um, participate and they showcase their achievements. Yeah, right? and Basel houses polymer clay Sailor Moon figurines on uh, display. He's still alive. <laughs> well, it was Basil's son, Basil III. Oh, okay. Yeah, Basil Rickettbottoms III. He took his father's polymer clay Sailor Moon figurines to the World's Fair to display. Like okay. he does every year. I assume there's a World's Fair every year. There's not. Well, whenever they have them. Well, imagine you're heading toward the fair, and the first thing you see is a giant, sleek, white, possibly phallic monument, reminiscent of an ancient Egyptian obelisk okay. piercing the sky. This was known as the Trilon. Mm. Below it, there's an equally white, awe-inspiring spherical structure known as the Perisphere. You know, it looks beautiful in this photograph, but uh, I imagine it's just made out of, like, paper mache. Whatever it was made of, it was meant to be demolished <laughs> okay. after it was all over, so you're probably not wrong. So along with the Trilon, the Perisphere, and many other monuments, there were also several exhibits introducing new inventions and new technological advancements that, you know, supported the whole theme of the yeah. future. 1939, yeah. probably like a, a clapping monkey toy. What? Yeah, like the clapping. The symbols. Oh yeah, it's not. They're not clapping. Symbols. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Things that they had prototypes for basically were nylon fabric, an electric typewriter, X-rays, television, telephones, computer chips, and there was even a talking robot. So you're telling me that people in the 1940s, they're still reading books. They're still reading their dictionaries at home. That's all they did by candlelight. And all of a sudden, you're showing them television. Yeah, they robots, had a hard time believing it. Yeah. Electric stuff. Electric stuff, yes. That's wild. It is. It is. They had a hard time believing it. So these these exhibits with the prototypes, they had to really be creative with. They, mm. They're like, we have to make them believe that this is not a trick. <laughs> Listeners, you can find all the images we are going to discuss today, including some videos of the World's Fair and a video of the piece we're going to talk about today on our website at artslicepod.com and, to a lesser extent, our Instagram page at artslicepod. All right, check this out. Is this the robot? Yes, there it is. That is not a... <laughs> That's a robot. That is not a robot. There's not a person inside of that okay, robot. No, there is a person inside of this. They got a little light bulb in the center that's going on and off. Someone's in there, like, flipping it on and off. No. And there's a little... It's a Muppet. It's a Mussolini golden rose gold Muppet. It's a rose Muppet. gold Muppet. What are they making? Hot dogs? Yeah. Man, a lot of it's hot dog footage. Sausage. <laughs> this is this is where the sausage gets made. Wonder Bakery. Is that Wonder Bread? Mm-hmm. I know. It's, it's not kinda... really, like, a modern advancement. The you Dairy reckon... World of Tomorrow? <laughs> I don't... Yeah. Look. Yep. Those are cows. All right, we've got some more Kodak photo op moments here. Yeah, this is the original selfie museum right here. Oh, look, you can sit on this the perisphere. Yeah, I can sit on the balls. <laughs> the ball. The ball. Sorry, the one ball. ball. There's only one ball. Um, speaking of parachutes, there was actually a parachute ride. You could go to the top and then parachute on the way okay, down. Okay, this yeah. looks fun. I know. Dangerous, but exhilarating. You can wear the Trilon and parachute okay. on a little hat. Okay. Yeah. She's, she's positively beaming. Sure is. It looks like an apple. It is. Wait, it's a it's carrot. A no, it's a potato and a carrot. 
I know this isn't very good audio. I know because we're just we're reacting live to photos that Stephanie is showing us. And this woman with uh, what, what would you what do you call those sleeves? Yeah, she's got puffy sleeves. Like, smiling. That's actually very trendy right now. Big smile. She's wearing a hat that is a like a styrofoam plate with a carrot stuck through it and a potato next to it, symbolizing the trilon and the perisphere. Yeah. She has a snack for later. Yeah, I'd be careful of the New York pigeons. Pigeons. Yeah, this is the photo before she died. Oh my God. She put this hat on. She's not around anymore. Stop. She never got to know her grandkids. She never had them. Stop. Poor woman. She has no idea what was coming. The sun is shining in your eyes as you notice a crowd of people up ahead. They're pointing up at something and exclaiming in awe. You look up to see a giant silhouette against the horizon that only grows as you get closer. Then you realize it's a sculpture, a massive sculpture depicting a harp made up of singing figures. Its striking black color contrasts the suddenly dull environment surrounding it. The crowd is conversing excitedly about the piece as the press and amateur photographers alike take pictures with their cameras gripped firmly between two hands. What we are looking at is a larger-than-life sculpture called the harp. Augusta Savage was born in 1892 in Green Cove Springs, a brick-making town in Florida. It was bursting with natural red clay, so luckily... Bursting out everywhere. Yeah. Opening up cabinets, red clay. Opening up drawers, red clay. Okay, I meant from like... Starting your car up, red clay. Flushing your toilet, red clay. This is starting to sound like a horror movie. So there was plenty of red clay to go around, so luckily she did not have to fight off her other 13 siblings. 13 siblings. For clay. Yeah. 13. She was one of 13. Okay, 14. Well, there's plenty of clay going around. So clearly the uh, the parents did not visit our candy and condom moat at the Art Slice Museum atop the Art Slice hilltop. No, they didn't. Grab a little candy for the kids, pocket some uh, condoms for later for the for the parents. Then you have more candy, less kids. You get to have some candy then. Um. So anyway, she would seek out those red clay pits and eventually she stopped making mud pies along with her brothers and sisters. And she was like, oh, I can make other things. What is a mud pie? It's a pie made out of mud. Is it actually, does it look like a pie? Like, why would a kid you, make a pie? Like a little did crust? You never, I mean, I don't think they had like a pie cookie cutter thing. Let me look it up. Yeah, please. I'm having a hard time explaining this. Uh, okay, so a mass of mud or wet earth formed into the shape of a pie by a child. So, Stephanie, if you or I, despite my childlike wonder in the world, if I made a mud pie, it wouldn't be a mud pie because that's to be made by a child. According to this definition, go on. Correct. You're right. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah. But she wasn't making mud pies. She was making more. She was making like Eiffel Towers. Probably eventually, but she okay. did start out by making mud pies. Okay. Mud pie. That is correct. That is how you pronounce that. Okay. So I have a quote from Augusta recalling this period in her life. Mm. Quote, from the time I can first recall the rain falling on the red clay in Florida, I wanted to make things. When my brothers and sisters were making mud pies, I would be making ducks and chickens with the mud. Mm. End quote. So she was an artist from a, from a young age. Very young age. Yeah. Yes. Mud pie. <laughs> Did you just accidentally hit that? No. 
<laughs> okay. Um, so here we have an so here we have an image of a mud pie. <laughs> no. <laughs> that is a baby. That is that's a portrait bust of a baby. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a it's it's a baby. It is it is made from red clay, so mm. this is similar to the kind of clay that she was using in her childhood. So did she make this in her childhood? No, I was okay, going I was to say, say it was pretty advanced. She made this in her adulthood, but this is similar to the kind. Maybe of... Maybe she was snuffing out one of her thirteen brothers. Oh my them God, anymore. What? Shoving clay in their faces. <laughs> Stop. What? Mud pie. It's off the rails. It's <laughs> off the rails, folks. Oh my God. <sighs> okay. All right. I'm we're to finish this episode on my own. Augusta's family was poor, and her father was a minister who discouraged her artistic interests. She recalls her father beating her several times a week. Quote, mm. he nearly whipped all of the art out of me. And like, quote, this is a mud pie family, young lady. A mud only, pie? We only make mud pies. None of these ducks or chickens or babies. <laughs> I make the babies. Oh, my God, you make the ducks. I mean, you make the mud I mean, pies. Okay. <laughs> or I shouldn't be laughing at this part. No, when we talked That's fucked up. Okay. It's fucked up. What's fucked up? That, he that he's beat beating the shit out of her. Yeah. Well, she was a rebel from the beginning because she did not let that stop her. She didn't listen to him. Yeah. Um, so she continued to sculpt. Her talent was recognized in high school, and eventually she was asked to teach sculpting classes to her peers. But then she graduates from high school, and she moves to Jacksonville okay. in hopes of finding work as a sculptor. Okay. Right? Putting those skills she's learned from teaching. Jacksonville, Florida, well-known for just... Tons of sculptures everywhere. So really, it's a sculpture economy. Possibly. I have no way of knowing that. Yeah. Whatever it was, it didn't work out for Augusta. So okay. she decided to aim higher, and she decides to head to New York City. New York City? New York City. Okay. Harlem, to be exact, which is a borough of New York City. All right. So Harlem at this time is in the middle of its own renaissance, the Harlem Renaissance. So it was an intellectual and cultural revival of Black American music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, and politics. Um, So it's basically all centered in Harlem. Yeah. Um, And that lasted through the 1920s and the 1930s. Okay. So Black artists were beginning to take control of how Black culture was represented and not through the lens of racism. So closely linked to the civil rights movement. Yes, considering that politics was a part of the yeah, Harlem Renaissance. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Also, I can imagine that a lot of the uh, artists and intellectuals, fashion designers, whatever, musicians hanging out. They're all, all the creative people. Yeah, they're all like vibing with one another. They're learning from one another, much like you, you do when you're in a, a tightly knit creative community. Yes, you have things in common and right. you're like, oh my gosh, you're my people. Yes, let's talk about what makes us... And that Us. gets your neurons firing. <laughs> you're like excited. You're making work. You're feeling the the flow of uh, of making work, of making poems, of being political. <laughs> I don't know. You anything. Know. Yeah. Anything is possible when yeah. you are in that kind of an environment. Exciting. Yes. Um. So something that brought all of these people together was something called the Great Migration, mm-hmm. which was the relocation of more than six million African Americans from the rural South. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they fled from the South to other major cities across the country. So this went on from about 1916 to 1970. Black Americans fleeing the South were leaving because they were looking for job opportunities. I believe there was like a drought back then. Yes. And I want to say like a big bug infestation. So at this time, cotton was a huge resource that the Southern economy was built on. This was what slavery had been built on. Yeah. So all of that, but also the daily terrorism that they faced. 
least uh, due to the KKK. Like, right. not okay. You should. No one should have to live in terror. And that's what it was. I mean, that's what terrorist organizations do. They murder and they terrorize so people will leave. Well, it worked. These people who have lived in the South their entire lives mm-hmm. packed up everything that they had and they left. In great number. How bad things must have been for them to leave everything they know, even if it was terrible, to then go someplace unknown anywhere else. Yeah. Right. Don't blame them. What'd you say? I don't blame them. Oh, I thought you said no bueno. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't bueno. No bueno. They got to get <laughs> out of there. <laughs> yeah. So between 1910 and 1920, the black population exploded in several northern cities mm-hmm. uh, by a lot. So New York, 66%. Chicago, 148%. Philadelphia, 500%. Wow. And Detroit, 611%. Yeah. This is 10 years. Um, and this is just to name a few cities. Remember that the Great Migration lasted until about the 70s. So eventually this went on to trigger the white flight of the 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s, where white folks fled to the suburbs because they did not want to coexist in a racially diverse urban area, yeah. city. So this led to urban cities crumbling because all the white money left and these black communities were just basically left behind. And instead of capitalism saying, well, we'll see you later, white money, like go ahead and enjoy the fucking suburbs. Yeah, right. uh, the companies <laughs> yeah, followed them to the suburbs and the companies and landlords that did stick around ended up exploiting black workers with lower pay and higher rent. They also used the cheap migrant labor to break up mostly white unions that were formed to fight for higher wages. Of course, the people who had been working there for so long wanted higher wages, but the migrants needed jobs. So it was pitting them against one another, working totally in capitalism's favor. Yeah, totally not like what's happening today. So that is actually where Martin Wong found himself, if you remember back to episode two, in uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. That's right. Yeah. It's all coming together. All coming together. So as All the white people are moving (laughs) to Connecticut. (laughs) So as a result of housing tensions like segregation, discrimination, redlining, black people still faced discrimination up north. It just wasn't called Jim yeah, Crow. It was a uh, discrimination by another name. Right. And so this then led a lot of the black residents to create their own little cities within big cities. Right. So this fostered the growth of a new urban African-American culture. And that brings us back to Harlem in New York City, which used to be an all-white neighborhood, but then by the 1920s, there were over 200,000 Black Americans living there. The Black experience during this time was an important theme in the Harlem Renaissance, and that would come to have a huge impact on the culture and the people. So it's kind of like you said earlier. Yeah, I mean, that certainly sounds like an environment that is ripe for a renaissance of sorts. It actually also reminds me of the three witches in a way, moving to Mexico City, finding each other, and inspiring one another creatively. So Augusta gets to Harlem, and she She has $4.60 in her pocket. Yeah. She finds a job as an apartment caretaker. And she's leaving her 13 brothers and sisters and her mud pie. (laughs) Back in Florida. Yeah. Fuck Florida. Get out of there. Well, she did. Okay. And she got into um, mud pie. (laughs) She did not get into mud pie. (laughs) What'd she get into stuff? She got into one of the best art schools in the country. Which one was that stuff? 
Cooper Union. Cooper Union. Yeah. Tell us about Cooper Union. Cooper Union is a school that has traditionally paid for all, well, not all of your expenses, but your tuition to attend there. It's a very prestigious institution. She beat out plenty of applicants to get into this school. So she's pretty talented. Um, I can tell you from my days of uh, working the art school beat, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the Cooper Union line is usually really long and most of those kids are not getting into it because it's such a prestigious institution. It's very hard to get in. So portfolio days, used to work portfolio days. Yeah. And there would be a line of hopeful young students yep. at the Cooper Union table. Mm-hmm. Good for her. They actually uh, realized she didn't have funding from her parents. So not only did Cooper Union pay for her to go to school there, they also gave her living expenses. They paid for her dorm. That was a real full ride. They paid for her materials, if I'm not mistaken, wow. because she was such a prodigy. She's graduated. She's living and working in a small studio apartment, and she quickly earns a reputation as a portrait sculptor. And she completes uh, a couple busts of two leading figures of the Harlem Renaissance, which were W.E.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson. They're a big deal. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Yeah, tell us. All right. So W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the founding members of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He was also a leading figure of securing anti-lynching legislation in the 1920s. He was a self-described socialist. (sighs) Comrade Du Bois. (laughs) Um, And he was a champion and a supporter of Augusta Savage. He really believed in her talent. And a lot of other stuff. This guy was a big deal. But yep. um, these are just some highlights. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Now. G- general good guy. All around good guy. Good mustache, good guy. He did have a good mustache. Yeah. Well, that's a goatee, isn't it? <laughs> it's a combination. James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson. The other person that she sculpted. Yes. Okay. He was another member of the NAACP as well. He believed that it was important for Blacks to produce great literature and art. Yes. So also, he was a supporter of Augusta Savage. For this reason, she was also talented, obviously. Um, But he was also a poet. So in 1899, he wrote a poem called Lift Every Voice and Sing. And then his brother was a musician, and they put music to it. And this beautiful song was born. And it ends up becoming the Black National Anthem. Okay. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven Bit of uh, foreshadowing stuff, is that, is that what you're doing there? Which part? The, the song. I'm not going to sing. No, foreshadowing, a little bit of foreshadowing. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to sing the song. I was not asking you to sing. <laughs> okay. I'll just sit down with my talent over here. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shut your mud pot. <laughs> so Augusta earns praise for her realistic depiction of Black people. So I want to talk about two examples real quick. Here is a little bust of a mm-hmm. little boy, and the name of it is Gammon, which actually translates to street urchin in French. Is it because this little kid like plays out on the street all the time and he's just out there all the time? It's kind of a cute nickname. This was based on her nephew, which his name was not Gammon, but I'm not, (laughs) so I'm not sure where it came from. So this was done in 1929 and it's made of painted plaster, not bronze. It looks like bronze. Yeah. Yeah. You know what she did? She did a little DIY. She made out of plaster and then she painted it with shoe polish to make it look like bronze. Faking it till you making it. 
I think Augusta does a really good job of capturing this little boy's personality. Probably helped that she knew him, but I I love how she even captured the like the little wrinkles on his shirt. Mm-hmm. Because kids, you know, they get messy. They don't stay unwrinkled. <laughs> And we should say that the reason why she's casting things in plaster is because bronze is fucking expensive. It's very expensive. So Cooper Union basically paid for all of her materials while she was there because she just didn't have the money to afford bronze. And very few people did at this time anyway. Yeah. So she's a, she's a master at what she does, but she has to do these like... Hacks? Yeah, these DIY hacks. <laughs> Art hacks. To uh, <laughs> Augusta Savage's YouTube channel, how to make your plaster sculpture look like bronze. Yeah. Um, Please like and subscribe. Okay. Hit the bell. What? I don't know. That's the thing that I don't know about. (laughs) All right. The second sculpture I wanted to talk about is a bust of Mm. one of her students, Gwendolyn Knight. Oh, Gwendolyn Knight, the the famous artist who was married to another famous artist, Jacob Lawrence. That's right. Both from the Harlem uh, Renaissance. Yes. So with this one, as well as uh, Gammon, I think she does a great job of capturing the essence of her sitters, right? Mm. In this case, Gwendolyn. And she also knew her. Stephanie, was that also uh, made out of plaster? Yes. Our pantry babies are hungry. You got a pantry entry ready to go? Feeding time, let's go. Plaster is an inexpensive material that is often used to make sculptures or cast for sculptures, so a mold that you would pour your bronze into. Museums have also used plaster to create copies of art historical works that they would not otherwise have in their collection, like Rodin's The Thinker. You know, that nude man with his hand under his chin and he's just really thinking about stuff. I don't know. What do you think he's thinking about? It's an incredibly durable material that's made out of sand, ground stone, hair, really a variety of materials. It is also commonly used instead of drywall in houses. Russell and I used to live in an apartment with walls made from plaster, but with horse hair added for good measure. And it was really hard to hang pictures on it, and it ate up our Wi-Fi. While Savage used plaster to imitate bronze, a material she couldn't afford, Artists started using plaster for its unique texture and raw appearance in the early 20th century. Artists who are taking their first sculpture classes may also be familiar with using plaster to make body casts, or doctors may use it to mend your broken bones. Stephanie, thank you for that art slice pantry entry. I think the pantrymon have been satiated for another couple of weeks. (laughs) All right, you were saying? So Augusta was one of the first artists to realistically portray Black subjects. Her depictions of Black people are the complete opposite of how they had been represented pretty much up until this point through racist propaganda. Exactly. For example, racist caricatures, exaggerating Black stereotypes, Mm. you know, like one feature or another, or minstrels, the image of minstrels. Yeah. Which are basically white people in blackface. So minstrel shows were entertainment for white folks in the 19th and 20th centuries that were based on racist depictions of black people by white people in blackface. And these images still pop up. They're hard to look at, at. but they also still pop up to this day. A couple years ago, Prada put out some keychains that were meant to look like cute monkeys, but they... They're based on these minstrel characters. Whether they knew it or not, they probably knew it. I mean, I'm like rolling my eyes, (laughs) listeners. I'm like, okay, how do you not know at this point? You might not know, Maybe not. Yeah, no, I, I honestly think a lot of people may not know, but that's where it's important to... Let them know. Educate them if you feel they are open to it. Don't waste your breath on a troll or someone who is just unwilling to hear someone else's experience. The most popular image is probably that one of Jim Crow. It's also the 
well, arguably the most gruesome. Yes. So it started way back in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. There was a failed white actor who just, I mean, he oh, sucked. Really? He failed. His name was Thomas Rice or something. Not Jim Crow. Jim Crow was the character. No, right. So, so he, Crow being a racist term for like black like a crow. Yes. So yeah. he invented a character where basically he put on blackface. Blackface. Listeners will include a video of this on our website. It's Pretty brutal to watch it's hard because to look at. there's a crowd of uh, well-dressed white folks just Clapping laughing their and, ass off and yeah. having a good old time. The name stuck around, though, as a pejorative term for a black person, a negative term for a black person. Um, and eventually it came to describe the racist legislature that was happening in the South. So, right. oh, we're going to pass these laws that are racist. They're just going to be called laws. Listeners, for your, if you're not in America or if you're like us and had a terrible education while in America. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, the slaves were freed, technically. What happened is that they made a bunch of other laws to basically keep those black people restricted. Jim Crow was basically a racial apartheid through legislation. So any quote unquote freedoms that they had gained were gone with Jim Crow. And listeners, it's it's important to note that unlike some countries, we actually govern state by state. So while there are national laws, uh, we have this system called a feudalist system. Federalist, damn it. (laughs) I earlier. It is well. It is a feudalist system. It's both. It's not. You're not wrong. <laughs> it's feudal, uh, but it is a federal system. But <laughs> yeah. So basically, you can have different laws state to state that don't necessarily coincide with the national laws. Like I said, Jim Crow was in everyone's face. Okay, so it affected every part of the Black American's life in the South. Whether it was in a school, at a park, water fountain, libraries, anywhere. If you were confused as to where you belonged due to your skin color, there was a sign right there to tell you. So while Jim Crow was not enforced in northern cities to where all of the black Americans were escaping to, there was still segregation and racism there. It just wasn't called Jim Crow. Right. In 1923, Augusta won a prestigious scholarship to study sculpture in France for a summer, but the offer was rescinded when Mm. the all-white committee realized that she was black. Now, Steph, how did they figure out she was black. Okay, well, what I think happened is somebody who got snubbed realized that she got it, and they were like, oh, hey, committee, whisper, whisper, mm-hmm. whisper, whisper. Um, She's black, in case you didn't know. Okay. Because she totally won this on merit, right? She probably submitted yeah. pictures of her sculptures yeah. and her resume. You know, she went to the Cooper Union, whatever. Like, yeah. she looks, she's badass on paper, right? Okay, so what they told her was that they could not have a black woman sharing the same space as these, these white Southern women. Because it would make Augusta yeah, feel uncomfortable. Because the vapors. Who would get the vapors? The Southern ladies. What are the vapors? The Southern ladies, they'll, they'll wilt like flowers. Look at the vapors. What are the vapors? The vapors. Oh, I have the vapors. What are the vapors? They're vapors. They're on the cruise ship going to Paris. They're all falling off because they're getting the vapors. They're passing out. Where are their fainting chairs? What are vapors? You can't expect a dainty <laughs> Southern woman to see a glimmer of a black woman and not just like get the, the vapors and fall over. <laughs> Like fall the sp- off the side and there's sharks out Stop. there. Are they like the fainting goats? Exactly. They just like fall the, over. Exactly like the fainting goats. <laughs> oh, I have the vapors and they just fall over. <laughs> oh, I do believe I have the racist vapors. And okay. then the only thing, the only thing that resurrects as Southern Belle who has the racist vapors, Steph, is a mint julep. Okay. <laughs> they can't keep that much mint julep on hand. Plus they'd be getting fucked up. So they, they get rewarded for being minds. racist. They keep, yeah, they keep falling. Oh, they're going to have alcohol poisoning. <laughs> okay. It's a mess. It's a huge mess. Man, if I was Augusta, Gosh. that is a that is a superpower. I'm wearing a 
big brimmed hat, walking right into that that gaggle. What's a group of Southern Bells called? A gaggle? Oh my gosh, is there a word for that? I don't know. A, a, a belgle? A belgle. I'm walking into the, the <laughs> gathering of the Southern Bells, and I'm just, I'm take off that hat, fall over. They all fall Buffet over. line, mine. <laughs> I'm not fighting okay. for those oysters. It's mine. Okay. Limbo line, mine. That's a way to live right I'm, there. I'm hitting the steel drums. No <laughs> one's there. Stop me. Steel drums are mine. Good. That's not You're what happened. You're just looking at me in disbelief. but I'm, I'm just now learning what the vapors are, okay? It's a real thing. I had never heard of the vapors. Yeah. That's why they had those fainting chairs. The racist vapors. The racist vapors. Okay, great. I wish that was a real thing. You want to talk about a, a federal jobs program? Think about like 80% of the police force just being unable to work because they were too racist to stand up. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, a lot of jobs. Everyone's That's just it. fainting. We're job creators. I mean, everywhere though. Yeah. So you're going to need a wagon to pick up all of these <laughs> fainted people. Felicia, get the push broom. <laughs> we got a lot of fainting uh, racists out here. We got to push them off the edge. <laughs> the racist vapors did not sit well with Augusta. No, okay. At least the excuse of the racist vapors. It didn't sit well with her, and she responded to the whole scandal with a searing open letter that was published in the New York World. Quote, I hear so many complaints to the effect that Negroes do not take advantage of the educational opportunities offered them. Well, one of the reasons why more of my race do not go in for higher education is that as soon as one of us gets his head above the crowd, there are millions of feet ready to crush it back again to that dead level of commonplace thus creating a racial deadline of culture in our republic. For how am I to compete with other American artists if I am not to be given the same opportunity? End quote. She absolutely has a point. Um, and I should say, too, that W.E.B. Du Bois stuck up for her. But that did not change the mind of the the all-white committee at that French school. Oh, really? <laughs> they did not rescind their <laughs> They weren't decision. apologetic. No, absolutely not. So okay. she did not end up going there. She did go to Paris eventually. She did. Uh, years later, I think through basically kind of like a crowdfunding slash scholarship. So she got to go there <laughs> yep. eventually, but, you know, not through the merit of that prestigious award. Right. So. So this incident showed that Augusta was a force to be reckoned with. For a woman, an artist of color to stand up and speak out at that time was unheard of. Um, Not to mention dangerous because she's a woman, she's an artist, and she's black. And like we mentioned before, she she didn't have very much money. Just being a sculptor alone without a lot of funding is one thing. Yeah. And then throw on top of that woman, ambitious black woman. Yeah. Who knows that she deserves everything her male and white counterparts deserve. Well, this whole scandal inspired her to begin arts-based activism for the Black community. She's thinking beyond herself now. Yeah. Maybe she's realized that in terms of change for racial equality, or any, really, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen in her lifetime. She has to pave the way for those who will come after her. All right, so... It's the 30s now. Mm -hmm. The Depression is upon us. Despite this, Augusta continued her passion for activism, and she continued to create opportunities for Black artists in her community. So she starts the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, and she becomes an influential teacher in Harlem. Which I think was just built out of a garage. She was DIY. DIY. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it sounds like she was a natural educator. She was teaching kids all the way back to those mud pie days. When she was a kid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was in her blood in a way. She wanted to create a space for fostering creativity, right? Like a a mini Harlem Renaissance in this DIY garage. (laughs) So where people could share a human experience, right? What set them apart from the rest of society is what brought them together. 
through the WPA, which was the Works Progress Administration. So FDR. The Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts became the Harlem Community Art Center. It's official. It's got its official little it's stamp a, on it. It's still in a garage, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but she became the first director of it, okay. as she should have. That was her arts and crafts place. Yeah. We need another WPA. Yeah. Even if another, it wasn't. Uh, New Deal. Yeah, I know, right? All right, so it's the 30s, and Augusta is just doing her thing. She's teaching. She's churning out an entire generation of badass artists. She's doing her thing. Okay, 1937 rolls around. She gets tapped on the shoulder to be commissioned to create a work of art that celebrates African-American musical contributions for the New York World's Fair. Oh, we're back at the World's Fair. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, yep. I thought that was just random. I just thought, thought you just want to talk about the World's Fair for a while. We're never random here. Okay. So she wants to bring Harlem to what she knows will be mostly a white audience at the World's Fair to show the pride and dignity of Black people through her sculpture. Like she did with her busts. Yes. So, like teachers do, they put themselves, their experience, their knowledge out there on the table for the audience to experience. Mm. She's making this a teachable moment. And she finds inspiration in Lift Every Voice and Sing... That song by James Weldon Johnson. So one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. Exactly. That guy. So this song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, became the Black National Anthem. Uh, So basically it's about persevering, Mm. okay, as a Black person, surviving slavery, continuing to be oppressed. Surviving a migration, too. Yep. Yeah, that's that was no easy feat back then. No, and the lyrics are very powerful, very moving. She wants to encapsulate that song and the Black experience into one sculpture. She's very ambitious. And she decides to step outside of her comfort zone when it comes to creating this work. So up until this point, she's basically doing just realistic depictions, either in bust form or full figure form. But this is something entirely different. Augusta's masterpiece had a platform at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. The theme was optimistically named World of Tomorrow for a vision of a utopian city of the future, and the Trilon and Perisphere structures were the symbols of that utopia. But unlike the Trilon or the Perisphere, Augusta's harp is not blazing white nor geometric. It is quite literally the opposite. It is black in color and it is more organic in shape. Smaller in scale, yes, but a masterpiece that was within reach, within possibility. The harp similarly accomplishes a representation of a utopia, one in which Black people can rise up, be heard, and be seen by all. So, Stephanie. Yes? We're here. We're in the Art Slice Museum's Sculpture Grounds. Oh. New just edition. Outside, just outside. Yeah, new edition. Just outside of the candy and condom moat in a beautiful, lush, green garden with plenty of spaces for sculpture. But we had to resurrect the harp from the World Fair oh. in 1930. What is it? 1939? Mm-hmm. So, we had to traverse both time and a mutt. 
forest. Excuse me? Filled with mud pie. What? Mud pie. Everywhere. It was everywhere. Mud pie. Our shoes are caked to the brim. Mud pie. With mud. <laughs> Where? What? We're just up up to the knees. Where? In mud pie. Where is this? To get here, we had to traverse the mud pie. forest. Like the mud pies in our front lawn you keep stepping on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. And sometimes there's dog doo-doo in there and it's not great. But anyway... <laughs> We got a three. We got a three D model of Augusta Savages, the harp, and we have to decide if it's going on the art slice sculpture grounds. Yes. 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 Okay. Of course. What do you like about it? Well, this work is a stark contrast to the other monumental, larger than life sculptures mm-hmm. that were at this fair. The harp, I think, breaks the old stagnant tradition of the white male artist because Augusta herself is presenting her own monumental sculpture. The work that we saw before, the uh, I think it was the portrait of Gammon and Gwendolyn Knight, mm-hmm. those were far more academic and very similar to what you would see in a museum. Any historical place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's usually of a white man. Yeah, a white, uh, <laughs> a white man or a bare-breasted young lass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uncle Fred likes those. Okay, okay. Uh, This is totally different from her other work, too. It is. It is. That's true. So I think so far we've only talked about 2D work on Art Slice. Mm, Sounds about right. Mostly painting, graphic novel. (laughs) Yeah. Some tempera stuff. Some prints. So that is usually easier to cover. We've seen at least other paintings by the artists that we're talking about, if not the painting that we are talking about, or we have a pretty good reproduction in front of us. Right. So this is old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It no longer exists. Spoiler alert. And it's three-dimensional. So we don't have the luxury of standing next to it, of walking around it, of getting a sense of its scale. Where is it in space? Can you see everything or is it too crowded? Are parts of it unaccessible? Are all the parts that are meant to be seen able to be seen? What's the material like? What's the texture like? It's it's really hard to tell with 3D work from a photograph, especially a photograph from the 1930s. Right. A grainy, grainy photograph. You know me. I like to like major zoom in to, <laughs> to photos and paintings yeah. and all that. So I definitely did that with this just to see if I can like gather some sort of texture to like yeah. go off of and not so much. But what I did find helpful was this video. And yes, it is from 1939. There, there was video back then. Okay, are you going to play it? Yes, I'm going to play it for you. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So listeners, we're looking at a really short video just to get a sense of scale. It's got a nice little beat to like it. like these beats. <laughs> oh, this is huge. This is a huge piece. It's massive. Oh my God. Okay, this is, changes a lot. So there's a younger boy. He's kneeling forward. Behind him is the harp. A hand is the back of the, I don't know what the back of the harp sounding is called. Sounding board. The sounding board. Yeah. So a giant hand is the sounding board. And there are all these faces singing, but they're stretched like they were dragged in like Photoshop. Like oh, stretched yes. and skewed so in Photoshop. There's twelve figures making up the harp. Yeah. And they're all singing. And so it's really it's really abstract, actually, until you get to the faces. That's when her academic skills really show. Right. And I think it's also important to mention that every single face is unique. As the choir singers get closer to the hand or the sounding board, they, like I said, start to shrink in scale, which almost becomes surreal in a way because the figures become just a little bit abstracted. I mean, even the, the singers' bodies, they're, I think, supposed to be strings, but they're also very column-like. Right. Which is pretty amazing since she hadn't, A, worked in this scale before. Right. And B, worked this, or at least hadn't brought this kind of an abstraction component to her work yeah. either. Right. Also because, though, they're 
there is not a ton of research on Augusta Savage. Not really, no. She's becoming more well-known, but, I mean, this was like almost 100 years ago. Right. And there hasn't been that much written about her. So even then, it's hard to to find research on the work. Yeah. Much less that it doesn't exist anymore. So going back to her busts and her full-figured work, you know, it's good. It's well-made. It's very realistic. I, I would say she does have a bit more of a stylistic touch to her work okay. than some other sculptors when you say that just those boring busts of like Napoleon that you don't give a shit about and you walk right by <laughs> in the museum. You know, her work has a little bit more texture to it. Maybe it's that plaster she's using. Well, the DIY hack. Yeah. That's giving it some life, some it's personality. Gi- yeah, it is giving it a little texture. bit of graininess, which yes. I actually really enjoy. And it looks like the harp has a bit of that in it, too. Well, yes. Also, the we should say it's super duper dark. It is It is dark because she painted it to be that way. She wanted it to resemble black basalt, mm. which is it's Vol- a hard, volcanic. Yeah, it's yeah, a hard yeah, yeah. black stone that is formed from volcanic lava. Interesting. I that's totally badass. get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's also one of the like one of the hardest stones on earth. And I don't think that's any accident that she would have chosen. Chosen specifically that. That color or that texture to emulate. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's the exact opposite of the whiteness of all the sculptures at the fair. Every sculpture we saw was white. Pretty much. The the Trilon and the Parisphere, they're, they're like blindingly white. If you look at it like in the context of what white means culturally, it's associated with purity, with, you know, wealth. So you can keep your clothes clean and like epic marble sculptures, brilliant Western artists, which were turns out probably painted. Right. The blackness in this piece is amplified on purpose. Yes. And it also, I think, perfectly personifies the song that it's based on. Mm. Lift every voice and sing. If I wanted to compare this to another like black sculpture that sits outside of a building, the Louis Bourgeois (laughs) giant spiders, this is far more interesting to me. Is it because this is the only one you've ever seen of its kind? Yeah, maybe if I saw like a hundred of them. But I don't know. The spiders never really did much for me in the first place. Okay. You just hate those spiders, don't you? All kinds of spiders. Well, no, I like the spiders. I just wish like turn them into swing sets or something. I don't know. Oh, that would be be cool. Yeah, let people climb on them. But the harp, it has intentionality to it. It commands your attention. It's not just like an obstacle to to get around so you can go get some ice cream or whatever. All right. So let's remember what her goal was with this sculpture or what we think her goal was with this sculpture at the World's Fair. Okay. She wanted to bring a little bit of Harlem to mm-hmm. the world's eye, right? To the audience's view. I think she accomplished that. I mean, it really stands out from everything that we've seen at this fair. It is completely different. It does not seem futuristic in any way in the sense that it's trying to be this like amorphous, like (laughs) like, geometric form, like, oh, future people live here. (laughs) But it is like the future to her, I think. If it's similar to the poem and the song, the future is just dignity for the people around her. Right. The figures are of different sizes, but they're all raised up. Yeah. They're larger than life. The message of this song is larger than life, her life. Yeah. It's beyond her. It's for the generations to come. Be prideful in who you are. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of your upbringing. Stay resilient. Yeah. I'm sure that people who saw this probably didn't forget it. It was one of the most photographed objects at the fair, and I can see why, because even if you didn't take a picture of it, I don't know how you could ever forget it. What I found interesting about the the choir figures, like I mentioned before, they recede in space as they get closer to the sounding board. And that giant hand that's cradling them. That's the hand of God, okay? The sounding board to their voice. 
choices. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, the front head, the first head, is probably like 16 feet tall. It probably right? is, yeah. Uh, she's singing proudly, straight ahead, looking right at you, right? But because it's a sculpture, depending on where you're at, depending on what your angle is when you look at it, you can either see a few of those singing column string faces <laughs> or you can see all of them. And it, what it does is it gives this impression of harmony echoing and bouncing off of church ceilings and walls. Okay. It makes these 12 figures seem like they're like a multitude. It's just, a, I'm, see, I'm like, I'm speechless because I, <laughs> I, it's just... Just from the images alone, it's so powerful. I remember when I showed you an image of it, you're like, whoa, 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 go back. What is that? That is so weird. Yeah. Is that real? And I'm like, yeah, that is real. Yeah, maybe that's something we should discuss. Because <laughs> well, Stephanie was showing me Augusta Savage when we were discussing what artists cover. And I was looking at her work and I'm like, okay, it's good. It's well done. But I'm just not, it's just not, I understand. All the racist depictions yeah, and how. It she, makes yeah. sense like why you would want a very academic. Mm representation of black Americans in a museum or in a gallery just for people to see like you know these are beautiful dignified people but for me I like work that is more experimental that is a little bit weirder Mm -hmm. that makes me think a little bit more than just like oh okay this person's very proficient in making this and when I saw that I was like what the hell is that it's kind of both it's kind of both (laughs) it's both yeah exactly like she has those like really abstract robes that that look like the strings or the chords or whatever you know you want to call you can tell I'm not a musician but (laughs) (laughs) well not that kind of a musician yeah 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 the academic proficiency of her ability is still on full display as Mm -hmm. well but I love that she has chosen to step outside of what she's used to step outside of her comfort zone and challenge herself even as a master sculptor yeah i'm just so sad that it does not exist anymore yeah so Um, why don't you talk about that yeah so it's normal for all of the objects and all of the works made for the world fair to be demolished at the end Mm -hmm. that's normal um ideally what would have happened is a patron would have stepped forward and be like hey gusta i need this i need this in bronze here's all the money um but that didn't happen right it didn't happen. So it it was ultimately destroyed. She couldn't afford to haul that away, first no, of all, no. or to store it. Where is she going to put that thing in New York City? <laughs> Where is she going to put that? Um, but yeah, so that's why it was destroyed. But I think even from photographs, like that is a loud piece. Like they're singing, like the figures are meant to be singing. And I don't think it's necessary to hear anything. Like they're a choir, right? Or it's they're, they're a choir making up an instrument. But I feel like just visually, it's it's beckoning on its own. It's yeah. loud on its own. Where I feel like if she had chosen to just depict one solitary Black American figure, that's different mm-hmm. than showing a multitude. Well, it just shows that they're like, they're on a mission. They're united for some reason. They're all together. Yeah. It's not just one person. You're right. It was also probably very moving for Black Americans, young Black children to see themselves in a work of art. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine like seeing yourself yeah. reflected in a sculpture like it's crazy that i mean i would i mean that i would imagine that would be moving to to <laughs> i just think that that was part of her mission tap into that potential that everybody has whether it's in the arts or not whether it's just to stir someone to do something about the injustices that are going on even if it means you're recognizing yourself in a sculpture and if that's enough to get you to do something then her work is done right absolutely Thinking about Augusta's life and just how much she had to fight for and go through, I also see this as a a protest piece. It's a protest anthem. Maybe that choir is singing a protest anthem, too, after they're done with Lift Every Voice and Sing. (laughs) 
Savage spent her life fighting for opportunities and rising above adversity, not just for herself, but for those she knew would come after her. She was aware she was sculpting the way for a new generation. Savage not only had to overcome adversity due to the color of her skin, but her life was also filled with the highs and lows that everyone faces. One example was being replaced as the director of the Harlem Community Arts Center while she was preparing for the World's Fair, the art center that she had started. Eventually, she moved to upstate New York and faded out of the spotlight, still making work at her farmhouse. And while her monument, the harp, was never commissioned to be cast in bronze, and instead was swept away in the rubble of the World of Tomorrow monuments, Augusta was always looking forward. She knew that the World Fair's theme of a utopian tomorrow was all hype. She knew that her monument, like the harp, would not last forever. Her monument was in the change she spurred in her students, so they too could continue the long journey of working towards change. Quote, if I can inspire one of these youngsters to develop the talent I know they possess, then my monument will be in their work. No one could ask for more than that. End quote. So teaching was such a huge part of Augusta's legacy that I think it would actually do her disservice not to talk about how far her legacy stretched. So, Stephanie, I just want to take a minute, just a minute, <laughs> talk about one of my, just happens to be one of my favorite painters. No coincidence. It's just not a coincidence. Of course yeah, not. I, w- I wouldn't just bring it up for that. Uh, Jacob Lawrence. We mentioned him a few times already. He was a student of Augusta Savage's. Right. So Jacob Lawrence grew up drawing colorful patterns that he saw in the rugs and textiles that his mother collected. His parents were both part of the Great Migration. Eventually, a young Jacob Lawrence found his way into the Harlem Community Arts Center, where he, of course, was taught by Augusta Savage, among others. Augusta mentored and helped Jacob develop his work. She also helped him get a job. So when the federal art project of the WPA was looking for teachers, she took him downtown, told him to bring his artwork, and he applied for a job. But turns out he was too young. He was 20 instead of 21. Oh, geez. So the next year, Jacob had totally forgotten about this. But Augusta remembered. Right. They told him to come back. Yeah. And he totally forgot. So she went back to Jacob. Dragged him back downtown. Dragged him back (laughs) a year later. And he was given a job. It was such a salary boost at that time. It totally changed his life. And he was really young, too, so that's awesome. he's 21 years old. Now he had a job. He had money. He had time to paint. Augusta then also secured for him a scholarship to attend the American Artist School, which was a socialist-minded art school that stressed making art about the class realities of the day. It stressed socially relevant content, basically. Watch out, world. (laughs) Something that can be seen in Lawrence's work throughout his career. Wow, I bet that was really formative for him. So you could see that in his first major exhibition, which was in 1941. It was called the Migration Series. Stylistically speaking, it's completely different than Augusta's, right? His paints are flat. They're depicting figures, but they're flat in almost like geometric shapes. I can't wait to get into those. (laughs) But they both use figures, right? And they both show the humanity of Black Americans. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, We will definitely cover him later. Yeah. Thanks for teasing us. Tease. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts on the harp. What you did or you didn't like about it, and if it would go in your museum. 
You can let us know what you thought of this work or any of the previous works we've covered. Yeah, you can email us your thoughts uh, or you can email us a short audio clip of your thoughts to artslicepod at gmail.com. A very short clip. Very short. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who has sent in their art assignments. If you're new to Art Slice, or if you're just now getting around to doing one of our art assignments... From any episode. Any episode. (laughs) Send them to artslicepod at gmail.com. We're very grateful to everyone who has subscribed, shared, and reviewed the show so far. And we love seeing those reviews come in. Uh, it's just Steph and I making these. We don't have a producer. Well, I guess I'm the producer. We don't have an intern. We don't have, we don't have an intern, but you could be an intern. Uh, but yeah, it's just us. And, you know, it's a lot of work. It's it's more work than you would expect. And it really makes it worthwhile. Reviewing, subscribing, and sharing helps us to please the algorithm gods. So <laughs> more folks like you can find out about the show. Yeah, it actually just makes us visible so we very much appreciate it you're you're doing the hard work for us and a very special thank you to musician chris keo for letting us use his work uh it's from processed harp works volume one and two and seriously like i really enjoy these two albums they're amazing uh they're processed harps <laughs> but it's really cool. ambient and really incredible so uh, if you like that type of music go check them out we'll link his work on our website And remember, you can find us on all the things. TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, email, and good old Instagram. They're all at ArtSlicePod. So we will see you next time, listeners. And no, your kid could not have sculpted that. Bye. 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 Bye.